Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. Does SpaceX's announcement this week mean space tourism is really going to take off? You know, SpaceX is, is it's a massively innovative company, but even they are struggling with the technical difficulties around human spaceflight. And I speak to Zia Chisti of Affinity about the role of artificial intelligence in business. Despite what you may think in the ambient media, there has nothing that's substantively changed in the way of how enterprises are running their businesses that would, uh, in my mind, get to this level of transformation that seems to be commonplace in thought. But first, for decades, doctors and governments have been trying to wean tobacco smokers off of the harmful habit. But it's a difficult task. The stimulant in tobacco, nicotine, is as addictive as heroin and cocaine. But the introduction of e-cigarettes around 10 years ago has proven to be extremely popular. I'm joined by Natasha Loder, the Economist healthcare correspondent, to discuss this growing popularity. Natasha, why is it so popular? Well, it's a consumer product and it's easy to get hold of. And smokers have correctly identified that it's actually less harmful for them. It's less likely to make them very ill. That's probably part of the appeal. So if it's safer, is there a problem? If you talk to public health officials, some of them will tell you that it's one of the greatest innovations in public health. Others are not so sure. They're worried that teenagers are taking it up. And still others are worrying about what the long-term effects of using uh, e-cigarettes are. So for governments, there's a lot of uncertainty about how they should regulate e-cigarettes. And for people who are still smoking, there are some who are a little bit suspicious of them and wondering whether they should use them. And parents, obviously, are worried about their kids taking up vaping as well. But parents are worried about kids eating candy bars as well. And candy bars have sugar and all these other problems. It sounds like vaping is a better alternative. How much safer or less harmful is vaping to traditional cigarettes? And what should public policy do? This is a really hard question to answer precisely, but a really easy question to answer in general terms. So let me just take a step back. One of the reasons we know that e-cigarettes are better for you is simply that smoking is just so fantastically bad for you. And so even though e-cigarettes are really kind of a new thing and we don't really know their long-term effects and we can't really clearly say what exactly they're doing in the body yet. So cigarettes are just so bad for you that practically doing anything else, maybe even hitting your head against a wall repeatedly, (laughs) would be better for you. So in relative terms, that's kind of how people view these things is smoking cigarettes is bad, you know, do anything else. The kind of dilemma comes from the fact that actually there are other methods for quitting smoking that probably are less harmful than e-cigarettes. And so gum and patches and there's prescription medicines. And there are lots of ways of quitting smoking that we know work. 
which your doctor can prescribe and which are recommended. And so the kind of dilemma comes from the fact is of whether you say to people, you should try these other methods first or you should try an e-cigarette. And we actually don't know the answer to that question. So there's that. Is there any talk about making the regulation stricter to ensure that we don't hook a new generation? It depends what country you're talking about. Certainly in America, for example, that seems to be very much on the cards. And so if the e-cigarette makers can't keep young people away from their products, the FDA will do something about it. They're particularly worried about an e-cigarette called Juul, which has become incredibly popular among teenagers. Why? It's small, it's trendy, it's what all the kids are doing. It's a neat little device that has just taken off in the same way that fidget spinners and Furbies did once. And it, it kind of gives you quite a strong hit of nicotine, rather like a cigarette. And it's addictive, right? And so, you know, if one kid takes it into school and their friends try it, then they're going to want their own Juul. I mean, that's kind of how these things happen. The thing is, is that next year... They can leave the fidget spinner in the drawer. They're not going to want to keep going, buying more fidget spinners um, or need to, to to function normally. Other countries have, have reacted quite differently. Israel, for example, has just banned the jewel. And in Britain, the jewel is regulated, so it doesn't kind of give you quite as much of a nicotine hit. So there's all sorts of different approaches to these things. And there really is no simple answer, but you just have to kind of essentially keep them out of the hands of kids and kind of make sure that adults are using them. That's really the basic message. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up, SpaceX. Elon Musk's rocket company has unveiled the first private passenger it plans to fly around the moon, the Japanese billionaire Yasaku Mezawa. The mission is planned for 2023, and it would be the first lunar journey by humans since 1972. But will it actually happen? To discuss this, I'm joined by Tim Cross, the Economist science correspondent. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. So will this actually happen? No. Thank you for joining the show. Thanks, Ken. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, why not? Okay, will it happen? It might happen, okay? It's a big ask, but we should say... Elon Musk, particularly when it comes to space travel, has a history of confounding his critics. So he founded SpaceX in 2002, and not many people except him would have thought at the time that, you know, now, 16 years later, it has a fat order book. It's taking business off all the other uh, launch outfits around the world. They've made reusable rockets into a reality. So he has a track record, and we should probably take him seriously. Having said that, even he said this is an aspirational timeline. You know, Even he was saying this is a big ask, and I don't know if we can do it. What's the limiting factor here? It should be pretty simple to put a person next to the moon, wouldn't it? Well, you'd think. I mean, it's human spaceflight is really hard. It's much harder than any other kind of spaceflight. So one of SpaceX's contracts is to fly cargo to the ISS for NASA. It has a second contract where it's supposed to be flying humans to the ISS, astronauts, because at the moment, the only way they can get there is on Russian rockets. That is years late. And the ISS is you know, much, much closer than the moon is. If something goes wrong on the ISS, you can get off it easily. You know, you can use smaller rockets. Now, the rocket he wants to fly Mazar on, the BFR, the Big Falcon Rocket, and I should say for the record, Falcon used to be another word beginning with F that was a bit more colorful. That rocket doesn't even exist yet. The spaceship that he will go in, they started engineering work on it, but the plan mostly exists on paper. They had another plan to fly someone around the moon in the Dragon spaceship, which does exist and is the one that's supposed to take astronauts to the ISS uh, on top of one of the existing Falcon rockets, probably the Falcon Heavy that flew a few months back. That was supposed to happen at the end of this year. 
that's been shelved. So SpaceX is a massively innovative company, but even they are struggling with the technical difficulties around human spaceflight, to say nothing of the financial ones. And Tim, humor me, how much would it cost me to go into space? I suspect if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Um, The answer is, you know, we don't know exactly, but we do know that Mezawa said it's not just going to be him. He's going to buy all the seats on the first trip. And he's talked about taking, you know, painters and artists and so on with him to the moon. How many seats are there? Again, I'm not sure we know exactly, but he's talked about bringing between eight and 12 people along with him, of whom Mr. Musk might be, be one. That's one of the sort of interesting angles to this story. So the rocket, the BFR that SpaceX are now developing, if it ever flies, it'll be the most powerful rocket that we've ever built, which from a technology standpoint is, is sort of great and amazing. But from a commercial standpoint, it's not hugely clear what the market is for something like this. And now SpaceX has got to where it is today by being you know, reasonably hard-nosed and commercial. So it has these contracts with NASA to service the ISS. It's competing very strongly in the satellite launch business, which is an established business. People want satellites in space. The BFR is, is like absolutely enormous. It's much bigger and more powerful even than the Saturn Vs that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon. And it's kind of not clear what you would use this for and, and where the market is. So why did he build the BFR? Well, so Musk built the BFR because his long-term goal, and he's always been very open about this, is that it's too dangerous for humans to exist only on one planet and we need to establish a colony on Mars. Now, if you want to take lots of people and lots of stuff to Mars, you do need something like the BFR. Whether that's a sort of commercial business that can wash its face is another question. So we come back to this idea of space tourism. And in fact, Musk himself said that however much Meizawa had paid, and he didn't say how much it was, this was a sort of significant contribution to the development costs of the BFR. I mean, his exact words were that what Meizawa had paid was a non-trivial amount that would have a material impact on the BFR program. So it sounds from that like the plan is to raise as much of the development money as possible from promising these these jaunts to the super-rich. And as for Elon Musk himself, he seems like he's been a bit of a space cadet lately. He's a busy guy. He must be one of the, the, the sort of busiest men out there. Tesla's had various production problems, which we're, we're sort of all familiar with, which they've now finally uh, got over. He's tied up in a libel suit, and probably the less we talk about that, the better. People have, have sort of wondered whether the, the pressure is getting to him. I mean, SpaceX is interesting because he's in charge of it, but the company's run day-to-day by um, a woman called Gwyn Shotwell. So Musk isn't as involved with the day-to-day running of the company as I understand he is at Tesla. And I think there's pressure now from some of the investors saying, you know, maybe this is a model we want to copy at Tesla as well, because this is just too much for one person to manage. Really interesting. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. So what are your thoughts on SpaceX's latest announcement and on the growing role of e-cigarettes and whether we should take the e-cigarette manufacturers and hold them to account through capital punishment if they pollute our small children's lungs? Tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, business and artificial intelligence. I'm joined in the studio by Zia Chisti, founder and CEO of Affinity, a company who uses AI to monitor patterns in human behavior to increase a business's profitability. Prior to Affinity, Zia was the founding chairman of Align Technology and began his career in the mergers and acquisitions department of a big Wall Street firm in New York and London. Zia, welcome to Babbage. Hi. Lots of people have great expectations about AI and business. But how do you see AI moving into the commercial sphere? Well, first of all, I think the whole segment is overhyped. If you think about it, what is now conveniently called artificial intelligence 
is really just rebranded algorithms, which have existed for 20 years. Um, and some of the more flowery descriptions like deep learning are simply recharacterizations of what was called a multi-layer neural network back when I was in college. So, But the, but the difference is that they now work. Um, they work back then, too. What's changed really is computational capacity, so they work faster. But the underlying principles are identical. They really haven't shifted much. There's been no real tremendous algorithmic breakthrough. First, we need to distinguish what is this AI category. And a lot of it's just hype and naive venture capitalists thrusting money at anybody who takes that label as part of their pitch. So when you abstract away that whole piece, what impact are you really having from AI? At the moment, it's rather dilute, quite frankly. So despite what you may think in the ambient media, there has nothing that's substantively changed in the way of how enterprises are running their businesses that would, uh, in my mind, get to this level of transformation that seems to be commonplace in thought. Okay, this is really interesting because although it is true that the fundamental aspects of AI and the algorithms are largely the same as they were 20 years ago, the implementation is incredibly different. But when I look out at the world and I see things like self-driving cars, although certainly not in the near horizon, the far horizon, or delivery drones that rely on AI for crash avoidance, or even the fact that every single bank and post office uses OCR optical character recognition based on AI to identify handwritten material and extract that information, it looks to me as if AI is absolutely everywhere, even if you're calling it algorithms. Um, let's look at those three things that you described. Um, the easiest one is OCR. I mean, that's been around in essentially the same format for almost two decades. If you ran uh, an OCR algorithm on top of a handwritten sheet of paper, you'll get about the same accuracy that you get today, give or take a decimal point or two. Um, then you have these self-driving cars and you've got drones. The definition of AI that I'd like to impose on those is one of a continuously learning environment. So as information comes in, you have a learning module that titrates to a closer and closer solution over time. The algorithms that underpin how a car drives are unaffected by the ambient environment of the car over time. It is a set of algorithms that have been imbued into that self-driving car to recognize various features, um, drive the car around those features, have certain traffic situations pre-programmed such that they operate in a specific way in response to those traffic situations. It isn't a self-learning environment that adapts based on a improved understanding of a traffic environment or a driving pattern or other environmental information um, that gives rise to a better and better, quote, virtual driver. That's not what it does. So you have to distinguish that as sexy as it may be to see a, quote, self-driving car moving around town. That is not a apt characterization of AI's application uh, within that space. Drones are the same thing. You're trying to get from point A to point B and avoid collisions. Again, that's an algorithmic process. The drone itself isn't learning about its environment or adapting how it gets from point A to point B. It's been given a set of algorithms which it's executing. The design of those algorithms may be a bit better if imbued with an AI predecessor process that helps it to more rapidly identify things in its environment, sure. But AI within the drone or within the car, that's a stretch. So where do you see AI going in business and how do you use it in your company? Our application of AI is in behavioral prediction. So we're looking at how humans behave differently, customer to customer, agent to agent in a large enterprise. And that is a continually evolving prediction of behavior over time in response to new information. So as a customer calls in once, twice, three times, we learn more and more and more about that customer. We have a better and better understanding of how that customer is likely to interact in the future. But let's look ahead a little bit. 
I think we're going to disagree on what AI is. But where we're both going to agree is it's going to make a serious impact in business. Where do you see it making the biggest? I think that's um, a set of applications where, A, the economic output is very well defined or the social value is very well defined. And B, it's relatively easy to articulate at a core decision-making level. So well-defined economic output, easy to articulate. What are some of those? Medical image processing, right? So this is abstracting on that field of OCR. Can you detect cancer more efficiently in 3D images as opposed to 2D images? A very, very powerful application. Hydrocarbon mining and, and extraction with a three-dimensional view derived from bouncing sound waves off of substrates in geological layers, can you identify pockets of hydrocarbons more efficiently uh, than just drilling in random spots over time? If you have uh, applications like ours where you're predicting human behavior, can you use that to identify pockets of customers more effectively or pockets of employees more effectively within a large enterprise? These are all applications that are real-world, exist today, make material, if not transformational contributions to enterprises. I think those will be the breed that will succeed in the next decade. Zia, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And so what do you think? Do you agree with Zia that, in fact, algorithms have barely changed and the AI is simply the same thing we've done 20 years ago, or that there is something fundamentally new? Tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. 